Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we discuss the recent report by the prominent human rights organization, Human Rights Watch, that charges Israel with the crimes against humanity of apartheid and of persecution against their Palestinian population. We're fortunate to have with us one of the authors of the report, Eric Goldstein, who is acting executive director of the Middle East and North Africa Division of Human Rights Watch. He's conducted research missions to these and other regions of the Middle East since the 1980s, writing numerous reports for Human Rights Watch and publishing articles in the news media and academic journals. He has taught courses on human rights at Princeton and Georgetown universities. Before joining Human Rights Watch, Goldstein uh, worked at the Committee to Protect Journalists. He has a BA from Harvard and a master's degree in international affairs from Columbia University. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, Eric Goldstein. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. So this report uh, was a pr- pretty big deal. It uh, was covered in the you know in the New York Times uh, and makes some fairly heavy charges against Israel. Not that these charges are you know unique to HRW or novel particularly, but you charge in this uh, report you charge Israel with uh, the crimes of hu- crimes against humanity. All this, according to international law, of course, uh, crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution with regard to the Palestinian population. So, can you explain on what basis you came to these conclusions? Thanks for the question. Um, you know, we're a human rights organization, so when we use a term like this, we use it in the legal sense. It's not an insult term, or we're not making cheap analogies. Uh, the term apartheid is found in a convention on apartheid from 1973, and it's also in the statutes of the International Criminal Court. It's one of many crimes against humanity that are listed in those statutes. Um, it is one of two that deals with severe and systematic discrimination. So I, I take it that most people, when they hear crimes against humanity, they think of raping and pillaging and mass murder, and those are crimes against humanity. And we've called uh, many called those crimes out in many situations. Uh, most recently uh, in um, Myanmar, where we also found apartheid, but other crimes against humanity. Um, we're also not unaware that when today people hear the term apartheid, they immediately think of South Africa and their implications of that. And we've had to do a lot of explaining why we are insisting on the legal definition here. And we're not calling Israel an apartheid regime. We're not calling Israel South Africa. But there are parallels. I mean, the, 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 the legal concept did have its origin in South Africa, just as the term genocide had its origins in a particular genocide, the extermination of the Jews in World War II. Uh, and then in 1948, there was a convention uh, reached to uh, prevent genocide. 
And over the decades since then, people came to accept the concept of genocide as perhaps having its origins in World War II, but uh, having a meaning beyond that. It became more detached from its original concept. So the same thing is, I think apartheid is on the same trajectory, although at an earlier point in that trajectory. So people do think of South Africa. Yes, of course. I mean, having done some research on uh, the idea of reparations in South Africa uh, and having spent some time there a couple different times, you know, it's certainly what comes to my mind. Uh, and I really had no idea that it had uh, assumed this status in international law uh, and that you seem to have applied it and maybe, maybe others have applied it to Myanmar which, you know, was new, is news to me. I mean, I, I wonder, I mean, I don't want to get off on this uh, too much, but uh, because we have another, you know, more central case that we want to focus on. But, uh, you know, what if somebody said, well, uh, residential segregation in the United States is now sufficiently severe, it's more severe than it was in the 1960s, which I believe actually to be the case. I don't, I don't know that with, you know, any great certainty, but if I recall the research on this, I think that is in fact the case. Now, you know, how that came to be the case, is it a product of government policy, which I would assume would be some part of a definition in international law of what apartheid is? Uh, would the United States potentially be at risk of being declared an apartheid state? I mean, there, there is, of course, a famous book on this that, that is called American Apartheid by Doug Massey and Nancy Denton. Um, and I think the story is actually, you know, that things have gotten worse since they wrote that book 30 or 40 years ago now. Uh, the, the, the core of the legal definition of apartheid is not separateness, even though the term in Afrikaner refers to separateness. The core of the concept in law is domination. So there are three elements. Uh, one is having and the intent to maintain a system of domination to the advantage of one group over another group. Uh, the second part is having a system of, of severe of oppression and domination. And the third is certain inhumane acts that are committed as part of that project. Um, there are people who are uh, intend to make that case for the United States. Uh, I'm not going to pass judgment on that, but I can certainly talk about the extent to which it exists in Israel-Palestine, sure. where it exists, and um, why we were very comfortable making that determination. Well, yes, please. I mean, that's really the subject of our discussion today. Um, but so if you would get into some of the details about, you know, what justified your use of that, uh, that term or that uh, crime in the case of Israel-Palestine, of course, I'd like to know about that. Okay. You know, as somebody who's worked on Israel-Palestine for about three decades, in this report, we took a more aerial view than we usually do, where in the past we would focus on the occupied territories or on something that was going on in inside Israel proper. In this case, we looked at the whole territory that is under Israel's control, Israel plus the occupied West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip. And in that land mass, the population is uh, roughly evenly divided between Jews and Palestinians, Jewish Israelis and Palestinians. And there, um, there are very significant differences in how, in the rights that Palestinians enjoy in the different parts of that land. Uh, clearly, citizens of Israel 
just um, uh, about 20% of the Israeli population enjoy rights superior to the rights of Palestinians who live in the other areas. But wherever they live, their rights are inferior to the rights of Jews. So we did take this aerial view and pointed out that discrimination exists everywhere. But the crime requires a certain level of oppression and it requires inhumane acts. And it is in the occupied territories where we found the presence of those elements of the crime. So the examples that we gave of practices that meet that threshold are all in the West Bank, Gaza. And I, I'd like to note that uh, we focused on practices that are not primarily motivated by security. Or if they have a security component, which some do, uh, the, the implementation of those practices uh, make just no reasonable effort to balance security with the rights of the people who are harmed. So uh, I will list those, you know, for example, about one third of the West Bank has been confiscated. The land um, now is under Israeli control, much of it given over to settlements, much of it off limits because it's declared a military, closed military zone. This uh, land grab is um, maybe has some security element in it, but it's mainly about controlling land. Right. Um, the, there is the practice of denying building permits to Palestinians in Area C, which is constitutes two-thirds of the land, even though it's not where most Palestinians live. They live under Palestinian in, the, in, in Area A. But the denial of building permits uh, in Area C and in East Jerusalem as well creates enormous hardship for Palestinians. The natural growth of their communities is stunted. They'll build an illegal, quote-unquote, illegal addition to their house or a house for their, their children and their, their wives or spouses and then find the Israeli bulldozers pulling up and demolishing them on the grounds of um, that they don't have a permit. Again, this is not security. This is about preventing Palestinians from enjoying or having access to land that should belong to them. And what happens? Some of these families have to leave. They, they self-deport to other places. Um, there, there's uh, also something like half a million Palestinians who happened to be out of the country in 1967 when Israel uh, captured the West Bank, Gaza, and, and East Jerusalem, and they can't come back. This is, again, there's, there's maybe a security component, but it's really about demographic domination. Right. Israel wants to be a Jewish majority in, inside Israel, and uh, they, they want, um, obviously, a lot of land in the West Bank with minimum Palestinians. Right. So these are the kinds of practices that we think are inhumane and that really can't be defended as motivated primarily by security. And I can give other examples. I see. So, it, so one of the criticisms that we've been getting about the report is, oh, you're not taking into account Israeli security. But the practices that we focused on are really not all, uh, mostly about security. I see. So the, the idea that they're inhumane is simply a function of the fact that they're not oriented towards security, whatever the actions in question are. Is that, is that the way to understand no, there, inhumane? Inhum the, 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 there's a list of inhumane acts in the convention uh, on apartheid from 1973, and we based it on that. Um, the massive restrictions on the rights of Palestinians to move. For example, two million Palestinians live in the Gaza Strip. They're forbidden from 
exiting the Gaza Strip and entering Israel, um, except if they can get a hard to get obtain humanitarian exception uh, entry permit. Now, they don't have a right under international law to enter Israel per se, but they can't get to the West Bank or to East Jerusalem, which is part of the same occupied territory, without tra uh, traversing Israel. And under the Oslo Accords, even, uh, you know, they, Palestinian territories are one territorial unit. But these people have, you know, there's a whole generation of Gazans who've never in their lives left the Gaza Strip. Now, Egypt has a role in this as well. Egypt's closed its border most of the time. But uh, this policy, which does have a security justification, in our view, should, uh, should reflect also an effort to balance the rights of people to freedom of movement uh, against the security needs and not be just a blanket ban with occasional exceptions. It's really stunted the cultural growth, the political growth, the flourishing of people who live in this like 400 square mile, 400 square kilometer strip in the Gaza, 2 million people. Right. So how do you answer the, uh, the point or the claim that you haven't paid attention to Israel's security needs, other than to say that you're focused on the inhumane acts? Well, I think that um, you know, Israeli security concerns are, are genuine. And we've reported on in the past on many aspects of Palestinian armed attacks, for example, on Israeli civilians or rocketing from Gaza into Israel that have, you know, upended the lives and people in the nearest Jewish town, Sterot, condemned these as war crimes because they're indiscriminate attacks on civilians. So uh, we do we do constantly report on that. The fact that Israel has concerns about tunnels being built under the border, uh, in, under is, in, into Israel, is a legitimate security concern. We have no bone with trying to destroy those tunnels. But what does that have to do with uh, uh, strictly regulating the, the, the uh, flow of products into Gaza and out of Gaza produce by Gazan farmers that, that uh, should be reaching markets like the West Bank. Um, yes, maybe concrete. There are some items that are dual-use items, but the, um, the Im implementation of the closure of Gaza on the movement of people and of goods is clearly an, an act of collective punishment, and the relationship with Israel's security is attenuated. Right. So, um, you know, the charges you're making are not, it seems to me, dissimilar to the kinds of charges that have been leveled by, for example, the BDS, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanction uh, movement, to much controversy in recent years. And I wonder how you would, you know, see uh, the charges you've leveled in this report, you know, as compared to those of BDS and others. Uh, and insofar as you've perhaps move towards the BDS position, if that's maybe the way to see this. Why, why, why now? I mean, is there something about this moment that has changed HRW's view of what is going on in Israel? Because, I mean, many of the facts that you're talking about are not particularly novel. HRW is not BDS. We don't support it. We don't oppose it. We defend the rights of people to engage in boycotts and express themselves about it. But our position is quite different. They urge a boycott of Israel until Israel 
carries out three basic projects. Um, but that's not the position we take. We uh, do urge Israel to dismantle its system of apartheid. We urge um, the International Criminal Court to investigate the crime because it is within their statutes. We urge uh, businesses to ensure that their actions are, are in keeping with their own human rights responsibilities and not complicit aiding in apartheid. But that's quite different from calling for a consumer boycott, which we do not do, or calling for the boycott of Israeli academics or cultural stars or sports figures. We don't mm -hmm. do that. The second question you asked was, why now? And that's a fair question. And actually, we've gotten criticism from Palestinians who've said, well, finally, you know, it's not that, you know, something has changed here. It's Human Rights Watch that's changed. We've been saying it all along. And it's true that Palestinian organizations have called it apartheid for a long time. Um, and Israeli organizations in the past year have also made that determination. So we're certainly not the first one to do that. I think that, uh, first of all, we're a very, we're a conservative organization. We take uh, perhaps, you know, we're very cautious in our analysis. And because we chose to go the legal route, we had perhaps a harder, a higher hill to climb than if we just said, oh, this is like South Africa. So the, you know, in legal, legal proof, I think the most challenging part is intent, showing that Israel has the intent to maintain this system permanently. Um, and I think that perhaps we and others thought that the intent was not quite there as long as there seemed to be a peace process, that as long as Oslo had some life in it, as long as there were Israeli leaders who were prominently saying, you know, we still support a two-state solution and, you know, we want to see, you know, a Palestinian state and, uh, you know, uh, thriving in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Um, yeah, it, 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 you know, many people gave up on that a long time ago. And I think perhaps the determination could have made, been made earlier. But after uh, more than a decade of a Netanyahu government, where Netanyahu and other Israeli leaders repeatedly say they have zero intention of uh, creating a uh, withdrawing from most of the West Bank, um, talking about a Palestinian state minus, meaning no real Palestinian state, and taking concrete measures to not only increase the population of settlements, but close off areas, the continuing confiscation of land and the uh, building out of the infrastructure for those settlements so that they become seamlessly connected to Israel are pieces of evidence, I think, that, that speak to that intent and push it over the line. You know, there are Israelis who grew up in settlements who do not say, I grew up in the West Bank. Um, they, or they just think they honestly think that they grew up in Israel. And that's what that's how they speak of where they're from. So I think that this is an, an element that shows just the extent to which Israeli, you know, and there are many, many laws that also ex extend Israeli, uh, 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 the application of Israeli law extraterritorially into the West Bank. 
So, I mean, the, you've raised now a couple of things that I want to ask about. One is, you know, a, a kind of counter argument that, you know, whatever its failings, uh, Israel is the only real democracy in the region. And, you know, I guess the question in a way is, can it be both a democracy and an apartheid state? Is that is that possible? I mean, South Africa claimed that, of course, as well. But it was, you know, a Herrenfolk democracy or something like that. I think that within its green line borders, there's a good case that Israel is a democracy. In some ways, it's a vibrant democracy. Twenty uh, percent of the population belongs to the Arab minority. They have full citizenship rights. They vote. Um, they have other forms of discrimination, but they are part of the electorate. And we see that playing out in the current stalemate. Uh, but I think that it's debatable whether you can call a democracy a country that continues to rule over roughly five million people for half a century uh, in the West Bank, because those people don't have those rights. They, they, they have no rights to elect uh, the government that makes them the most important decisions over their lives. Yes, there is a Palestinian authority, but the Palestinian authority uh, has very limited powers. It's more akin to, say, a, a state government or a municipal government providing services. Maybe it didn't intend for that to be what it would be after a quarter century, but that's where we are. And so I understand that uh, Israel, I mean, Israel is a democracy in one sense, but I would not, I, I'm not want somebody who just will say it's the only democracy in the Middle East or that it is, you know, a democracy without a huge asterisk next to that label. Right. Well, this in turn leads to the other question that some of your comments raised, and that is, you know, what's the solution to this unacceptable arrangement? How do you get past a, a set of arrangements that make possible the kinds of crimes against humanity that you've just charged Israel with committing? Uh, and, you know, that debate has, as you've kind of suggested, has revolved around the question of one state or two states. And I mean, it seems to me that, you know, the momentum lately has been away from the two state solution and towards a, a one state solution that somehow, you know, makes for equal rights of the entire population gets away with the kind of, you know, oppression that you've just talked about and described. So, I you no. pr I don't I'm not guessing that I'm guessing that HRW doesn't have a position on the one state or the two state solution, no. but do you have a sense of you know where the momentum of events is taking things? Uh, do you want to comment on that, or is that maybe outside the realm of what you'd want to talk about? No, I'd be happy to talk about that. Yes, Human Rights Watch takes no position about one state, two state confederation. We, we think that dismantling apartheid is um, compatible with any political solution. Um, obviously, a two-state is on life support at this point. There's no momentum for it on, at this point. Um, but it's not, in theory, in any way incompatible. And I think here is where the distinction between the legal definition and the South Africa analogy is important. Because many people in Israel have said, oh, you're comparing us to South Africa. South Africa, South African apartheid was an illegitimate regime, and the only solution was to blow it up. And your, the logical conclusion of what your report finds is to blow up Israel and start over. No. Legally, apartheid is a system of severe discrimination. 
we found all the elements of the crime in the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. Imagine, just this is a thought exercise, because um, it's not about to happen, Israel unilaterally withdrew from the occupied territories. You'd be left with a situation inside Israel of discrimination, of systemic discrimination. Uh, you'd still have a refugee problem. Would that meet the definition of apartheid, which requires a certain level of oppression and inhumane acts? It's debatable. Well, I'm not going to answer that because it's a hypothetical and there are probably groups who will say, oh, it's still apartheid. But I think that, you know, this, this legal, you know, I think this is what many two state advocates say is, you know, if we withdraw, we can cut ourselves off from the cancer that's growing in the West Bank, keep it from metastasizing. And then we can focus on the very real problems that we have inside Israel. Um, the problems of the Bedouins in the Negev who live in unrecognized villages and discrimination in, in um, the rights of people to marry and family reunification with uh, bringing in members of the family from outside, um, discrimination in delivery of schools, of education services and others. Um, but what I, my point is that when you're not making the South Africa analogy, there are you know, eventual ways to just dismantle, to dismantle the system um, that that are feasible. Now, you know, there's some people prefer the one state, uh, one state uh, solution, which also, in theory, could could give people rights. But I think that with the kind of the uh, decline of in hope for a two state solution, um, there has to be a renewed focus on the rights of people now, because they were always put off in, into the, the future. Uh, that um, the, the attitude was, yes, it's terrible. Things that happen in the West Bank are terrible. But if we press all that much harder to resolve the conflict, then um, the human rights abuses, which are symptoms of that conflict, will, will be resolved. And it's just taken, it's, it's gone on too long. And we have to focus on the people who are living this today. And uh, if peace is elusive, all the more reason to create the conditions now for people of whatever their their uh, group that they belong to, to have the conditions where they can thrive and, and where their rights are, are respected. You know, one of the um, other, one of the many kind of illusions is, oh, it's, you know, there's the law of occupation. And so of course the occupier has certain prerogatives and people aren't going to get their full rights. Technically, that's true. But, you know, the, the law of occupation was designed for the morning after. You know, it's, it's supposed to be a short-term legal regime to deal with an uh, unstable, perhaps a violent situation when an army captures territory. This is now 54 years later, uh, two generations later, and there has to be some evolution in the rights that people can expect living in, in this situation. Uh, sure, there's still security problems, but they're not existential problems. And some of those security problems have been exacerbated by the illegal settling of 600 plus thousand Jews in this land. And the arrangements that have been set up to protect their lives, uh, their safety, to the detriment of the, five, the the three million Palestinians who live in the West Bank. So the 
issue of security uh, leads me to my next question, which really has to do with the American reaction to the report. I mean, insofar as there has been one, um, and more generally, the American posture towards this part of the world, which has always been in the post-World War II era, you know, what the United States wanted in many ways was what, you know, tended to happen insofar as it was in control of events. Um, and I would say that, you know, there's been this general kind of departure or decline of interest in the region having to do with the, the declining significance of oil in our economies and things like that. Um, but, you know, the Trump administration was actually quite uh, hands-on in certain ways uh, and had some modest successes, I think one would have to say, uh, with regard to Israel's relationships with some of its Arab neighbors. Um, but I wonder, you know, how, uh, you know, how is the United States reacting to the report and how do you see, I guess, the new administration's posture towards the region and towards Israel's place in the region? Uh, on paper, the Biden administration has stuck to its talking points, which is uh, we, we support a two-state solution. We um, talk to Israel about human rights, um, but it's telling that they uh, have downgraded it in its, among its Middle East priorities. Its priority is Iran right now. And that, I think, reflects that they know that this... Uh, you know, the two-state solution is not one summit away. It's a long way off. And in the meantime, they're restoring U.S. assistance to UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees. Um, there might be an upgrading of relations with the PLO after Trump basically ordered their shutdown, the shutdown of their embassy in Washington. And so those are small steps, but I think the Biden administration uh does not want to expend political capital right now, uh, doing a sprint in the hope of you know a summit and some breakthrough because they realistically have assessed it's not going to happen. In response to the report, they said they do not share the assessment of Human Rights Watch that this amounts to apartheid, but they uh, did not condemn the report. You know, I think if Pompeo had been Secretary of State, we would hear the, uh, you know, uh, vigorous denunciation and perhaps ex accusations that it's an anti-Semitic report. We didn't hear that from the Biden administration. And the other government that is close, very close with Israel that we are concerned about is the German government. And it was similar. We don't share that assessment, uh, but it was not, again, a, a vigorous denunciation. And I think if I were the Israeli government official sort of writing up the responses that this report received in Western capitals, I'd be disappointed. You know, it wasn't a, uh, a situation where they all, uh, you know, circled the wagons and to protect Israel. And, and so forth. I, I think, first of all, they all know that it's an accurate description of a system of, um, of, rampant discrimination uh, and control. Um, even if they choose not to use the word domination, they might say it's not helpful to our goal of achieving a solution of the ongoing conflict. But I don't think that uh, the facts of the report are so much in dispute. 
So since you've mentioned Iran, which might be seen as kind of the elephant in the room here, uh, I wonder, just as a kind of final question, uh, you know, where do you see that relationship going? It seems to me that Israel is indeed most worried about Iran these days. And, you know, with the collapse of the JCPOA, um, you know, it may have good reasons to be worried about uh, about Iran and its nuclear and other military capabilities. Uh, so I wonder, you know, how would you see the relate? I mean, as I was saying in my previous question, I mean, there has been some under the Trump administration. There was some improvement with some of the Arab neighbors, um, but with Iran, it doesn't look uh, quite so cozy. So I wonder how you think that kind of that broader regional security situation is going to develop with regard to Israel. One thing that's happened is that the Iran issue and the Palestinian issue have become detached. You don't hear policymakers saying, oh, if we can't solve the Palestinian-Israeli issue, it will make things worse with Iran. The Iran thing now has a life of its own, and this is reflective of, you know, the kind of peripheralization of the Palestinian issue in Middle East policy, you know, that, you know, there are different stages of that. Um, there was always in the, uh, a quarter century ago or longer concern that what happened in Palestine could ignite the quote unquote Arab street. The Arab spring of 2011 also further pushed Palestine to the margins. They each, you know, there was these uh, very nationally focused revolts against autocrats and then civil wars, uh, ongoing conflict in a number of countries in the region. So I think that um, the Iran issue is, is uh, largely decoupled from the Palestinian issue, um, and that the, you know, to, there's no sense in Israel of urgency to deal with the Palestinian issue in order to somehow reach a different outcome with Iran, nor I think do American policymakers see those two issues as somehow intrinsically joined which may be to the disadvantage of Palestinians. Uh, their, their issue is just not very high on the international agenda uh, right now. And the, uh, I, there have been a couple of really excellent papers published in the last couple of weeks, one by a working group at Carnegie Endowment and one by uh, Professor Nathan Brown at GWU, who basically takes stock of the kind of the stalled state of the peace process and what should be done. And, and while they neither of them embraces the term apartheid, they do embrace a recentering of rights. You have people who uh, should be enjoying their rights uh, regardless of the political outcome here, and that Israel needs to take steps to improve the rights and, 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 and dismantle the system that systematically it, it exists for the flourishing Jewish people, uh, which is, you know, that's one, that's pr pretty much the stated goal if you look at the nation state law that the Knesset adopted, um, to the detriment of the other people that, uh, that inhabits the same piece of land. And uh, that kind of approach uh, can, in the long term, uh, make the situation more propitious for peace. But it is, you know, it is not a, an, uh, an agenda that is driven by, you know, the need to, you know, reach a breakthrough in the peace process, which has always been 
more of a reason to downplay human rights than to address them head on. Right. Well, let's hope uh, the HRW report uh, moves things uh, somewhat in this direction. Uh, I want to thank Eric Goldstein for sharing his insights about Human Rights Watch's recent report on Israeli mistreatment of its Palestinian population. Uh, remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Risto Voinoff for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for this show. This is John Torpy saying thanks very much for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.